Uh, it's good to see so many kids here on Christmas, isn't it? <clears throat> if you think back over all the Christmases that you have experienced from your childhood until now, you probably don't remember many of the particular gifts that you've been given, unless you just have a really sharp memory, right? Most of us, most of the gifts that we've been given over our lifetime have just sort of faded into the background and faded into the mists of time, but maybe, maybe there's one or two that really stood out for you that you've never forgotten because it changed something significant about your life. Maybe uh, if you're a guy, maybe you remember the first pellet gun you got or the first rifle you got, maybe it was a Christmas present or uh, for the ladies, maybe you remember your first pair of real earrings that you got for Christmas or maybe, maybe your birthday is around Christmas and when you turn 16, maybe you finally got you know, your first car or maybe, maybe somebody in here, um, one year there was a little square box under the tree and you opened it up and somebody asked you that question, you know, would you marry me? Those kinds of gifts change your life, right? And, and they stick with you. Um, most of the gifts that we receive don't, right? But the, the first Christmas was a dramatic gift. It was a life-changing gift. It was even a world-changing gift. I want you to look with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 46. And we're going to look at what Mary had to say about this tremendous gift that God was giving to the world through her. We're focusing this morning on Mary's song or Mary's prayer. It's often called the Magnificat. It's... um, Mary's response to what God has already told her he is doing in her. The angel has already showed up and told Mary she's going to bear the Messiah. She's going to bear the Son of God. She's already gone to Elizabeth's house and uh, been told by Elizabeth that the baby in her womb, who's John the Baptist, leaped for joy when he heard Mary's greeting. And um, her heart is already overflowing with all of this news that's been given to her, all this uh, overwhelming truth about what God has chosen to do through her, and uh, flowing out of her heart from all of this that she's heard come these words, beginning in verse 46 of Luke 1. It says, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers 
to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary begins this song, this prayer, by glorifying God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's it's not hard to imagine the overwhelming joy and gratitude that would be welling up in Mary's heart at this point as she has been chosen for arguably the most significant task anybody has been chosen for up to that point. And so when she prays, when she sings, her heart is overflowing with joy and gratitude and she is pointing the attention away from her and toward the Lord who is worthy of all glory. And I wonder if there's anybody here who thinks that people come to church and sing hymns and read their Bible only because they ought to. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you why people would want to be in church, why people would want to gather to uh, worship God. If that that doesn't make sense to you, then it, it might be that the reason that doesn't make sense to you is because God has never done anything in your life that so overwhelmed you that you wanted to praise Him, to thank Him, to honor Him, to to point people to Him, to tell people about Him, to get together with other people who are also overwhelmed by the things that He's done for them and, and worship Him together. The reason that Mary sings is not because somebody told her she ought to sing. The the reason that Mary prays this prayer is not out of some sense of religious duty or obligation. The reason her heart overflows with praise is because she knows God has done something for her. And the people who love to come to church, people who love their Bibles, the people who love to sing, the reason why we love those things is because God has done something in us. He has changed us. He has saved us. He has forgiven us. And not all the time. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. We're here because we want to be. We pray because we want to. We sing because we want to. Because we've been reminded of what God has done for us. And once again, our hearts have overflowed with praise. So if that's not you this morning, where I want to start is, God has done something. God has sent His Son, though we have sinned against Him, though we have rebelled against Him, though we have gone our own way, He has given in love the gift of His Son, who Himself laid down His life, again, in love, in the place of sinners, so that anybody who recognizes their sin and their need for a Savior, anybody who turns to Jesus, anybody who trusts in Him, God has promised He will make you a new creation. He will forgive all of your sin. He will make you right with Him. He will give you life with Him. And and He promises life with Him forever. And if you experience that, if you taste that, if you recognize your need for that, and you turn to Him, and you ask Him, and you receive that forgiveness and that new life, and the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of you, There will be times you want to sing, you want to pray, you want to hear the word, you want to gather with other Christians. 
That's why Mary overflows with this praise, because of what God has done for her. For her, she calls Him her Savior. She rejoices in God my Savior, Mary, despite what some say. Mary was not perfect. She was not sinless. She was not chosen because she had no flaws. Just like everybody else God worked through in the Bible, she was a sinner, she was flawed, but God was her Savior. And in particular, she draws attention to what God is doing through her in sending Jesus into the world. Verse 48, she says, this is the reason why I rejoice, this is the reason why I magnify the Lord. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, All generations will call me blessed. So if you think, I'm not significant enough for God to care about me. I'm not important enough for God to have given his son for me. Why, Why would God care that much about me? Well, look at Mary. Why did God choose Mary? Why did God give Mary the privilege of bringing the Son of God into the world. It wasn't because she was great or because she was significant or because she was important or because everybody knew her and so that would bring attention to Jesus because, wow, God chose Mary. Well, Mary's really... Nobody knew Mary. She says he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She was a woman of of low social status. She was not important in the world's reckoning. Most people didn't know who she was. But God chose her as he loves to do. He loves to choose the things that the world overlooks, the people that the world thinks are not significant. He loves to use people, in other words, like you and me. He looked on her. He came to her. He chose her. And because of that, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, because... Some Roman Catholics make too much of Mary. Sometimes Protestants don't want to say much of anything (laughs) nice about Mary because we don't want to to go too far the other direction. But it's biblical to say that Mary is richly blessed by God, that she is someone we should honor, that we should say God has blessed her, God has given her a great gift. That's what the Bible says is going to happen. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Not because of who Mary was, but because of what God did for Mary. And that's how we ought to look at all the uh, significant figures of the Bible. We admire Paul not because of who Paul was, but because of what God did through Paul. We admire Moses not because of who Moses was, but because of what God did through Moses. How God used these people. We Admire Mary. We say that she is blessed because God chose her to bring his own son into the world. This is why she's rejoicing. Verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. I'm rejoicing because he's the strong one and I'm the weak one, but he has done great things for me and that causes me to rejoice and want to glorify him. But she says it's not, it's not just for me that God does great things. Verse 50 says, His mercy 
is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. His mercy, His love, His grace, His compassion is not only poured out on the people we who get named in the Bible like Mary and Moses and Paul and John and all the rest. Mary says His mercy, His love, His faithfulness is for everyone who will fear Him. Generations past, generations yet to come, everyone who fears the Lord, everyone who recognizes that He is God and they are not, and who trembles before Him and worships Him and trusts Him and submits to Him, Mary says, God pours out mercy on all those who fear Him. Which reminds us that despite how many people in our world and in our culture think what matters most in this world is not who fears you, but who you fear. Not who admires you, not who follows you, but who you admire, who you follow, who you look up to, who you treasure. Do you fear God? If so, God has promised His mercy to you. Mary goes in verse 51 from talking about what God has done for her in particular in sending His Son into the world through her to talking about the the fact that this is the kind of thing God does generally. This is the kind of thing God has done over and over in the past. It's the kind of thing He's doing again now through her. It's the kind of thing He will continue to do in the future. In other words, it's the kind of thing He's still doing now. What has He done He has turned things upside down. Verse 51 says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Mary there is echoing the words of Hannah who prayed a similar prayer uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 where she said the same thing. God turns things upside down. There are Uh, We know that the way the world often operates is backwards from the way it ought to. We know that oftentimes the people who are in power are wicked and corrupt. They don't use their power for the good of others. They use it for themselves. We know that often those who trust God and fear God and seek to live righteous, godly, upright lives are the very people who are persecuted and oppressed and downtrodden and and poor and weak and insignificant in the eyes of the world, while those who get all the press and have all the power and have all the privileges are people who care nothing for God. We know deep down it ought not to be that way. But we can't change it, right? We can't fix it. But God does and God will. Think about how God has done this in the past. How has He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate? I mean, He's been doing this all throughout history, all throughout the Scripture. Think about um, Joseph in the Old Testament. Not Mary's Joseph, but the Joseph who had the fancy coat and a bunch of brothers. And remember what his brothers did? They they threw him in a pit and sold him as a slave. Some of them wanted to kill him, but they decided to sell him instead. And then what happened? Joseph, who had been literally as low as you could go, was raised up to second in command in Egypt, 
And it was his brothers who had to come basically groveling to him, begging for food. They didn't even know it was him at first. Think about Goliath boasting against the armies of Israel. Defying and blaspheming God. Who took Goliath down? A great warrior? No, a little shepherd boy with some stones. When Jesus was born, who was on the throne? Caesar. Mighty Caesar. Ruler of the largest empire, the most powerful empire the world has ever known. But unless you've looked at Luke chapter 2 lately, you probably don't even know which Caesar it is. How many people know the details of the life of Caesar Augustus? Not very many. Is he still on his throne? Nope. How many people know the details of the life of Jesus? How many people are gathered today in the name of Jesus? Is Jesus still seated on his throne? Absolutely, he is. Think about Herod. Herod, who was king in Israel, the wise men came to Jerusalem seeking Jesus. They said, we we saw this star, we know a king has been born, we don't know where he is. And Herod's reaction was to pretend like he wanted to worship Jesus, when in reality he wanted to destroy Jesus. Was he able to? Was he successful? No. Instead of the king, the powerful one, coming to worship Jesus as he ought, being privileged to come to Jesus' side and bring him a gift, God announced the birth of Jesus to some shepherds, some people nobody was paying any attention to. And they got to come and see the Messiah, one of the first people besides Mary and Joseph, to see the Messiah when he was born into the world. These poor, insignificant shepherds. This is the kind of thing God does, has been doing, and will do in the future. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that there's coming a time when it says the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? All those who have mocked Jesus, blasphemed Jesus, ignored Jesus, shaken their fist at Jesus, scoffed at Jesus, one day they're going to be afraid of Jesus. One day they are going to regret every blasphemy they uttered, every moment they ignored him, every time they tried to take his place The lamb who was slain, ignored, mocked, will return as king of kings and lord of lords, and he will put all of his enemies under his feet. This is part of what Mary was talking about when she said that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, because it will be the the faithful believers, the people that nobody paid much attention to, who one day will reign with Jesus on his throne, while all those who 
grasped and held on to power by corrupt means and use their power for evil rather than good will be crushed by the Lamb. This means that the way things are is not the way that they will be. The story of Christmas is the story of God planting in the world the seed of its undoing and its ultimate renewal and restoration. When God sent His Son into the world, He was saying, in effect, it's time for a regime change. It's time for a new king. It's time... For a Savior. He came to set right what was wrong. He came to grant forgiveness to all who repent. He came to conquer all who continue to raise their fist in rebellion against Him. And He came to lift up the weak who've trusted Him but been trampled upon. That's part of what Mary was celebrating in this song. One more thing she was rejoicing about. Verse 54 and 55. She's rejoicing that God has remembered His promises, His words to Abraham and to the fathers. Mary knew the Old Testament. She knew the promise that God made way back in Genesis 3.15 that God would send a child into the world who would crush the serpent. She knew the promises He spoke to Abraham about offspring and land and blessing, not only for the family of Abraham, but through his family to the whole world. She knew the promises about the enemies of God's people being conquered. And she knew that in the birth of the Son that God had promised she would deliver, God was fulfilling those promises. Paul says in Galatians 3.16 that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ, the Messiah. All those promises, all throughout the Old Testament, were all pointing toward and preparing us for Jesus and are fulfilled in Jesus. So, if you hear us talking about how at the end Jesus is going to come back and He's going to restore everything and make all things new and everything's going to be right and we're going to get to live with Him in a new creation and you think... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I know that's what the Bible says. I know that's what we're supposed to think. But (coughs) we've all heard those promises, and it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Do you really believe that Jesus is going to come back? What reason do we have to think that God is going to keep those promises? The reason Mary gives us right here. How old were the promises to Abraham when Jesus was born? About 2,000 years. And he proved his faithfulness. He sent His Son after centuries and millennia of waiting. God did exactly what He said He was going to do. And He will do it again. People talk today about being on the right side of history. What you want to be on is the right side of God's story. If you side with the world, do things the world's way, your way, then when things get turned upside down, you're going to be on the bottom. And you will have lost all that you tried to gain. But if you side with Jesus and you confess Him as Lord and you ask Him to forgive you of your sin and you humble yourself before Him and trust Him, then when He returns, you will reign with Him. I mean, 
the act of God sending His Son into the world, is this not the sign of what He's going to do? How did Jesus come? He didn't come into a palace or a wealthy family. He didn't come fully formed, strong, powerful, mighty as a warrior. He came to a poor family, an insignificant place, placed in a manger, born as a baby. But it was through that helpless child that God changed the world. And when he comes back, he won't be helpless anymore. He'll be king of kings. He'll be lord of lords. He'll come with a sharp sword. And he'll come to gather all those who have put their trust, not in the world and its power, but who have put their trust in him. And we will reign with him forever. Let's pray.